Hello, you're listening to this month's edition of In on the Act with Sarah Jackman. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Black and Edward Blakeney, barristers at Falcon Chambers, to discuss the leasehold reform forfeiture bill. The private members bill, which was introduced into the House of Lords, is currently awaiting its second reading and, amongst other things, makes provision for landlords exercising right of forfeiture or re-entry in relation to a property subject to a long lease to account to the tenant for the tenant's equity in that property. Daniel, Edward, thank you very much indeed for joining me today to discuss the new bill. Um, Perhaps it's worth starting by just outlining for our listeners just what the bill does and and proposes. Thanks so much, Sarah. So, uh, yes, thank you for having us both. As you mentioned, this is the leasehold reform forfeiture bill, and there's a quotation on the legislation's website, which is uh, essentially, as you mentioned this uh, earlier on, and then goes on to talk about holding the tenant's equity on trust, restricts the landlord's right to legal and administration costs, and for connected purposes. And it's a bill that really, it does what it says on the tin. Um, It is not a particularly lengthy bill. It runs to about eight provisions, and the last three of those are supplementary in terms of anti-avoidance and definitions, etc. And so the first five really go through in a very logical sequence about, you know, holding the tenant's equity on trust, accounting for that equity and limiting costs. But I think Daniel and I, when we were discussing it earlier, you know, obviously this this bill comes with quite a few number of caveats and primarily that this is a private member's bill. Yeah, exactly that, Ed. And uh, thank you for welcoming uh, me on, uh, Sarah. So I'm Daniel, I'm the, the Scottish one. The big caveat is that this is a private member's bill which has begun in the House of Lords. It has been introduced by Lord Young, uh, and he has been in Parliament since since the, the 60s. But the importance of it being a private member's bill is it might not go anywhere. Or if it does start to go somewhere, then there could be substantial amendments made either in the Lords or in the Commons. And it's not likely at this stage to to have the support of the government, as far as we know, and that makes it more difficult to get legislation onto the statute books. And in fact, today, on the Parliament website and the House of Lords, second reading says under it, date to be announced. So we don't actually know when second reading will be, but ultimately it might happen. It's it's good to get out ahead of things and, and see what uh, is being considered in Parliament. And secondly, it's indicative of what legislation or perhaps the direction of legislation may be going in. Furthermore, it may also be the sort of thing that prompts serious thinking in the Labour Party, who if the opinion polls are to be believed are likely to be the new government and some might perceive might be more interested to follow through on this bill or something something like it. So there's there's the first suite of caveats that we're going to have to address as we go through this. And of course, you know, lawyers always love discussing hypotheticals. So the fact that it may not go anywhere is not going to discuss the lawyers getting a good deal of interest out of it. I I guess it's worth looking at some of the reasons behind it. So tell me a little bit then about the sort of rationale behind the private members bill and and just some of the issues that have contributed, in, in your opinion, to bringing it together. So where we are just now is is the situation 
in respect of long leases is, is that they're granted for a premium up front and that is of course where most of the value is to be found the situation typically though not exclusively is that you would have ground rent uh, for a, a modest um, amount where the concerns of um, Lord Young come in is that when a lease is, is forfeited so that is terminated a tenant can reply for relief from forfeiture and th the whole purpose of forfeiture provisions is to ensure that there's compliance with covenants uh, in a lease and there's a desire in Lord Young's bill to avoid a windfall being incurred for the landlord. The courts often avoid this and there's a tendency, Ed will uh, agree, to grant relief from forfeiture even in cases where a lessee's breach has in fact been deliberate because of those concerns. Yeah, so there's, there's quite a number of cases which talk about, you know, you can really have egregious tenants who are committing willful breaches and who the courts accept there cannot be a continuing relationship of landlord and tenant. But even then, they are granted relief from forfeiture to avoid this potential windfall for the landlord. So in the case of Freifeld, the tenant was granted relief for six months, essentially, to allow them to sell the lease. But it still comes up at the end of the day to this potential windfall for the landlord and the potential loss for the tenant of their valuable asset. And that's really what this bill is aimed at, you know, circumventing. And Ed opened her podcast by, by saying uh, it does what it says in the tin to account for the tenant's equity um, for that equity to be, to be held on trust and importantly to restrict the landlord's ability to recover costs. Follow the money and that's how we'll, we'll close this podcast. We'll have a thought about the, the cost implication because that in some ways might be the most significant development in changing the behaviour of parties to these sorts of disputes. Okay. So tell me a little bit then, just drawing on your own experience, about the sort of practical issues that are often encountered in relation to forfeiture and, and the extent, I guess, to which the bill in its current form adequately addresses those. So I think that sort of really comes in, in into section two of the bill. Section one talks about you know, how the bill works, but the, the meat of the bill is in section two, and that talks about how you calculate the uh, equity that is due to the tenant. Um, and, and that raises quite a number of issues that we see in practice. So the, the bill defines the tenant's equity as the aggregate value of the open market value, disregarding any default, and that's quite a important point I'll come back to, less any amount due to charges, so then you have protection for banks, etc., um, any finally determined amount due to the landlord and any reasonable costs permitted um, and as calculated under Section 5 of the bill. And then it talks about how you serve these notices of the calculating the tenant's equity. That's in Section 2. I was just going to ask how, how you think this might play into litigant behaviour in terms of relief applications. I think it could play in in a number of ways, actually. Um, as you mentioned, we've got costs. That's something um, that's dealt with in Section 5. But fundamentally, presuming the bill becomes law um, and the courts are aware of these provisions, then it, it's, it's quite interesting to see how it's going to impact on relief applications. Because if this if this major concern for courts about windfall falls away, 
because a landlord can no longer gain a windfall because the tenant's equity is protected under section two, three and four, then the courts, one of their major concerns is no longer there. Uh, and so then are, are they going to be more willing to grant possession and less like willing to uh, grant relief applications if you have these willfully defaulting tenants? But equally, if a tenant knows that no matter what they do, their equity is going to be protected, and yes, they might have to meet reasonable costs orders or they might have to meet uh, issues uh, where they've been finally determined damages for the breaches, then yes, they would have to account for those. But ultimately, they know that the, the, the core of their asset is protected. So may they become less concerned about breaches of covenant? May there then be, if you've got more aggressive landlords, knowing that you know they can get a tenant out because relief is less likely to be granted, and you, will you have a higher turnover of tenants? Because sometimes, you know, I, what I see in practice and what I discuss with a number of clients is, yes, you are right, the tenant is in breach, but if you bring proceedings, you will inevitably be faced by a relief application and relief will inevitably be granted. So let's look at this practically. Um, but if those practicalities, those practical concerns are changing with the introduction of this bill, then the whole relationship between landlord and tenant when one is faced with forfeiture and relief applications really changes. I think as well, one of the difficulties that a landlord is going to face under the provisions of this bill is this disregarding any default of the tenant. Now, often what one can see is you know, the classic example of disrepair breaches. Now, it is possible for a landlord still to be protected if the property is substantially damaged by a tenant, because you've got section 21B, uh, the open market is reduced by any finally determined amount due to the landlord. And often when you would be ordinarily forfeiting for a breach of a repairing obligation, you'd have to get it determined under the section 168 of the Common Hold and Leasehold Reform Act 2002. And indeed, in uh, the definition section of the bill, they define finally determined as having the same definition as under the 2002 Act. But if you are going to have to have this quantified, that's the real change, because as things currently stand, you would always need to get the breach determined, but often you can just get the existence of the breach determined. One doesn't need to quantify it in the first tier tribunal, you just need to establish that there is a breach. But if the landlord has to account for the equity, less this finally determined breach, you have to be able to put a number on that. And if you were putting a number on that, then you may have to end up going through either the courts or you might have to go through the FTT and then the courts to quantify your loss. But even if you went just through the courts rather than just through the FTT, the court process is obviously inevitably a much longer process than the FTT. And if you're dealing with issues of quantum, which Section 168 applications in the FTT often aren't concerned with, you're going to be facing a number of evidential burdens that is going to increase the time and cost that the landlord has to face um, to before it can finally determine the amount due as a result of the tenant's breach. So I think this Section 2 on first sight, it's very straightforward and sensible, but there are significant implications for what it means to landlords applications for either determination or possession and also tenants relief applications. And th this is quite significant in terms of 
perhaps there being unintended consequences with this bill. So let, let's assume for present purposes that this bill became an act in its present form. When, when one reads the explanatory notes and the policy background section, it, it's evident that what's motivated the bill is this idea of a windfall gain that landlords would be able, um, under the current law, to benefit from and to continue benefiting from moving forward. But, but as Ed brings out there, the behaviour of litigants may change in ways that the um, divisors of the bill hadn't necessarily thought of at the time this, this, this bill has, has come through. So I think it is, is correct to say that in terms of changing the relationship between certain landlords, at least, and, and tenants, there could be far-reaching implications of this bill that, that are perhaps not necessarily going to be accounted for in, in a bill which is only a few clauses long if it does in fact become an act in in that form but you're probably not surprised to hear a, a lawyer try and increase the amount of law there. We've heard a little bit then about the structure of what's proposed and, and potentially some of the practical issues that might associate with it. How does what's proposed sit within the wider context of leasehold reform that's going on at the moment. We've obviously had quite a lot of work that's that's gone into the area over the last few years. How how does this sit alongside some of that? Yeah, so I think it's well, both from its name and also from its spirit, it follows on from all the other leasehold legislation. So as um Daniel mentioned earlier, long leases are often granted for a premium with a nominal ground rent. Uh, that's all the more so, obviously, since we've had the Leasehold Reform Ground Rent Act 2002, which means that new leases are and extended leases are no ground rent, whereas you know, the ones that are pre-existing still have this potential for ground rent. Uh, but that is called Leasehold Reform Ground Rent Act. We are dealing with Leasehold Reform brackets forfeiture bill. So it really, you know, in name and nature, it, it feeds in as part of that. I think, though, that, you know, we've often been told that real change is coming, real change is coming. And when the Leasehold Reform Ground Rent Act came out, people thought, oh, well, this is a bit of a small step, but at least a step in the right direction. And beyond that, it's been relatively silent. And so whilst we can see that this bill itself is another step in towards protecting leaseholders, because ultimately that's that's what it does, it protects their equity, it, it's, it's another part of the statute legislation to protect them. But if you look at it in how far we've managed to get with what has already been produced compared to what has been promised, then I think you can read from perhaps, you know, that general wider atmosphere that perhaps this is, well, it's the first step in a long process to get this bill made law. And then in terms of next steps, do you have any inkling in terms of timing or are we entirely dependent on, on what comes out in terms of second reading and, and thereafter? I think we are we are dependent uh, on that. Parliament, it probably wouldn't have escaped our listeners' notices, it isn't doing a huge amount just now. The government itself isn't bringing forward vast amounts of, of legislation because of parliamentary management issues. Now, on one level, that perhaps creates more parliamentary time for this bill. On another level, one can see the other side of it, which is that will the government at this stage in the electoral cycle want to get involved in a potentially very significant reform in, in the leasehold market? M my suspicion is that they probably won't, but ultimately I'm not a politician, so I, I can't make that a forecast. I think I agree with Daniel. I mean, the only other thing I would add is 
this is significant for us property lawyers who love leasehold reform. But I suspect in terms of the government agenda, they have more pressing things that they would like to do when they can get you know, proper legislation tabled. So, uh, you know, there seems to have been a very slow process. This was only just done at the first reading in December last year. And as Daniel said, we've not even got a date for the second reading. So it's it's you know very early stages. And I think as well, when you're looking at some of the changes proposed by the bill, I suspect there's going to be some pushback or at least some amendments in some multiple readings. For example, as, as Daniel mentioned at the beginning, one of the changes proposed is on costs. And I think that is going to be something that landlords in particular, but you know, anyone who represents landlords' interests is going to be particularly concerned with because costs under the bill are limited to the lesser of the amount of costs actually incurred or 5% of the open market value of the property. But I've seen cases where you can have relatively inexpensive and quote unquote, you know, in the current property market, relatively inexpensive, still a few hundred thousand pounds. But if you have legal costs that are racked up through a lengthy trial or through difficult parties on either side, you can be looking you know, for a, a substantial trial of costs of 60,000, 70,000, 100,000, which immediately would be impermissible under the bill because you're limited to 5%. So if you had, for example, a £300,000 lease, you're limited to doing a trial on these matters, bearing in mind what we mentioned earlier about having to finally determine all breaches. You're limited to 5% of the value. And can you really get a full trial done from start to finish for £15,000? And the answer to that's going to be no. So exactly. Some, some things exactly. like that are going to have to be reviewed because otherwise it's going to put landlords at such a disadvantage and equally tenants given leverage that it's it's not going to be popular. Without wanting to sound like a broken record, earlier I said follow the money and again that becomes important and the reason it becomes important is about the leverage you can see being afforded to lessees if litigation is not worthwhile because in litigation as in so many other fields of life party behavior litigant behavior is is going to follow the money so to draw an analogy with the small claims regime under small value claims cost recovery is limited and in the context of that in a decision in 2009 uh, lord justice ward in a case called woodlake said that small claims were not worth litigating now, our situation is, of course, going to be different in the forfeiture realm because the values at stake in the main dispute are going to be far higher than small claims track limit of 10,000. But, but it is interesting by analogy because it's plain that the nature of a cost recovery regime does have an impact on how worthwhile litigation is or is perceived to be. And if we find ourselves in a situation where cost recovery is as limited as the bill proposes, you can find yourself in a situation where landlords may think this isn't worth the candle. And that is the sort of thing that gives lessees leverage. So on its current uh, drafting, it could be something that could change party behaviour quite significantly and put some leverage in the hand of the lessees.
We'll leave it there. Thank you both so much for coming on today and just giving us a, an overview of what's proposed. We'll obviously keep an eye on whether that progresses. And if it does, no doubt there'll be potential to talk about it at some point in the future. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. That was In on the Act from EG with Sarah Jackman. For previous episodes of In on the Act, see the archive at egi.co.uk.